0: Today's reading from the New Testament comes from Acts 17, through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Rheopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, this evening we're going to kick off a new uh, study, new sermon series, which we're calling Life in the Spirit. And it's looking forward to that time in the Christian calendar coming up, uh, Pentecost. Uh, that's the time in the calendar of the church we celebrate God pouring out his spirit on his people. Uh, Jesus raises from the dead, ascends to heaven, and then says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you my spirit. The book of Acts, when it tells the story of the church, says uh, Luke, in his Gospel of Luke, reported all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so he's continuing that work by his Spirit. And this series, Life in the Spirit, really is going to focus on a variety of different topics that the elders felt are, would be beneficial for us as a community to think about. Uh, areas where we have questions where we commonly hear questions, areas where we need to be completed. Um, Or maybe uh, someone who's looking into the Christian faith, coming to faith for the first time. And uh, I've asked uh, Matt Miller to uh, kick this series off. Matt has been on the staff of uh, two of our churches, Grace Downtown for years and then Grace Meridian Hill. He's also one of our pastoral interns, and in a couple weeks he's gonna graduate from Reformed Theological Seminary, so he's been looking forward to that. Um, he and Elizabeth, his wife, will be moving down to Mississippi, where she'll be a professor of English at Mississippi State, and Matt is in some conversations with some churches, so this'll be the last time for a while that we get a chance to hear this brother preach and teach. I'm gonna ask him to come on up now. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I began to to teach, a, um, rather, I began, I taught, preached, whatever you want to call it, a sermon that had to do with evangelism, sharing the faith. And in that, I, I told you about an experience I had meeting with people that identify as agnostic or atheist through a website. And I said the inspiration of that came from this guy. Uh, Matt had the idea first. Um, You know, he really has had such a heart to share his faith with people that haven't had a chance to hear, whether it's running around Chinatown uh, handing out brochures for a Christmas concert, or whether it's uh, meeting with people from Reddit website, whatever it be. So I'm so glad that we have him to talk on this topic. So come here. Let me pray for you. Thank you so much for Matt, his life. Thank you for his wife, Elizabeth, their long ministry here. Thank you for the gifts you've given this brother. I pray you'd bless us now as we learn. In Christ's name. Amen.
2: Thank you, Glenn. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. So two weeks ago, Glenn kicked off, uh, not kicked off, he actually was ending the series on Romans... And he introduced us to the topic of evangelism. And I recommend that you listen to it. Um, he talked about why evangelism is important and how evangelism functions. So I'm going to talk about how we share our faith and hopefully lay out some very practical ways of doing that. And I will just say that I'm so thankful for this opportunity to, to preach tonight. Um, it's been Amazing getting uh, all the years that we've had here uh, to spend at Grace downtown and Grace Meridian Hill. So thank you for uh, encouraging me and praying for me and Elizabeth. All right. So most of us in D.C. would agree that to live a decent life, uh, to be a good neighbor, to be an ethical lawyer, we can do all of these things without anyone thinking or knowing that we are Christian. You've heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And we tend to live this out, I think, more than we would accept. We think if we treat others really well and work hard, we'll give off some kind of Christian aura. And this aura will draw people to us, and they'll ask privately to us about Jesus. And then we'll give them some kind of really quick elevator speech about Jesus and the gospel and they'll become Christians and we'll grow together. That's our sort of dream scenario, right? That's mine. That's never happened. An op-ed in the Washington Post last May said of that saying, it's almost like saying feed the hungry at all times and if necessary use food. Um Yeah, it's a little, it's a little funny. Somewhere between that criticism and the original saying is, I think, the sweet spot for sharing our faith as Christians. So how do we share our faith? The Bible gives us some people to model ourselves after, and the Bible actually gives us several different methods, but tonight we're just going to focus in on one, and that's Paul's when he's speaking to the men at Athens. So, here's what we're going to do. We have three parts to this. The first part is called the method. That's our first point. And we're going to say we're going to see how Paul shared his faith through this passage. The second part is called the teacher. We're going to find out who Paul learned his method from. And finally, the third part is the invitation, how we can share like Paul. So it's the method, the teacher, and the invitation and each part is going to move exponentially faster so part one the method how did Paul share his faith let's move through this passage together and find out so keep your bulletin close to you to reference in Acts 17 the Apostle Paul is moving from city to city sharing the gospel and he stopped in Athens as he's waiting for his friends and colleagues to meet up with him, as so they can continue traveling around the world preaching Earlier in chapter 17, we see that Paul, after he's walking around and observing things, he sees that the city is full of idols. So he starts reasoning in the synagogues and the marketplaces with anyone who would listen. And some of these people were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and some were Jews. So it was a mix of different people. And we know from verse 18 that Paul was talking with people about Jesus and the resurrection, and this was causing quite a bit of a stir. So the philosophers in Athens decide to bring Paul to the Areopagus, which is just uh, a place where uh, the men of Athens, these authoritarian figures, would hear people, hear their thoughts. It wasn't a trial, but it was more just an official kind of hearing. Um, The Areopagus is also known as Mars Hill, which is a lot easier to say. And that's why you hear it more often. Um, So Paul had taken time to observe and learn about the culture and people in Athens. Interestingly, Paul doesn't quote any scripture in this speech. Instead, he only quotes Greek poets. He starts his speech by pointing out how devoutly religious, can also be translated superstitious, the people of Athens are. In verse 23, Paul refers to an inscription he had seen on an altar that said, to the unknown God. He then uses this inscription to the unknown God as a bridge to tell them about the one true God, the God of the Bible. This God is the creator of the universe who doesn't reside in a building and has no need for humans to serve him. Instead, this God freely gives to mankind life and breath and everything. This God is pleased to accept the service of his people not because he lacks something but because he loves his people. By verse 26, Paul really starts to heat up with what he's talking about. God who created everything also created the human race. And this human race descended from one man, one origin. Many Athenians believed they were somehow a superior race, since their bloodline traced back to the original immigration to Athens. They believed they were racially superior to all outsiders. Paul confronts their supposed racial superiority with biblical truth. He says, God made man God made from man every nation of mankind. Therefore, the Athenians had no justification for racial superiority. And there's likewise no racial superiority for any people group today. So most of us here tonight already accept that any form of racial superiority is a tremendous evil. And you would agree with the Bible's teaching here. But you may immediately reject the notion of God creating man from a common human ancestor. And that's a valid objection with the amount of scientific research that we're seeing today. If I had time tonight, I would have loved to discuss the ways that the Bible interacts with science. But I don't have that time. And so, don't be afraid to bring these types of tough questions to the Bible. Bring these questions to people in your community group, to the elders of our church. We invite these kinds of questions, and I know they have helped me grow tremendously. But tonight, we're going to build off our common agreements about this passage so far and see what else Paul has to say instead of focusing on that topic. Verse 26 states that God made the earth with humanity in mind. God was building us a home before he created us. Paul says God did this so that humanity would already know him. God has never been hidden the knowledge of God as creator is built into our existence you could say we were created to give thanks to God commentator Conrad Gempf helps clear up a common misconception of verse 27 based on this verse you might think that it's God laying out a trail of breadcrumbs for us to follow after and then we might find God but this isn't quite right Conrad writes that verse 27 isn't to be read as he is close so people can find him, but rather people cannot find him, but this isn't because he's far away. Think of it this way. If you have a contractor build you a home, and you step into it with the first, for the first time with this contractor, you don't think humanity in general for the craftsmanship of this new house. Right? You wouldn't say, uh, or you wouldn't see a show on HDTV, you know, where they do the house flipping thing and the, the new couple comes in with the contractor to see the final house. They wouldn't say, oh my word, isn't humanity great, standing next to the contractor. They wouldn't say, humans are so skillful. The energy of humanity has produced this beautiful home for me and my family. You will never hear that. You thank the builder of the house who's standing right next to you, which is what always happens, right? So Paul says it's ridiculous that we would give our appreciation and thanks to anyone but God who is the creator of this world. Paul's beginning to point out some of the contradictions to his listeners' beliefs. He's saying, God has been close to you this entire time, and you've closed your eyes. You suppress your knowledge of God by your own willful actions, and you deny the one true God who created the world. You might remember from Romans 1.20 when Glenn preached on this back in the fall as he kicked off a series on Romans where Paul says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made so they are without excuse in other words everyone knows god created the world no man is ignorant of god paul illustrates his arguments by quoting from two greek poets in verse 28 if we were if we were to read these poems in full we would see that it's zeus who's the supreme being that these poems are referring to in Zeus, we live and move, for we are indeed Zeus's offspring. Paul is both showing honor and knowledge for the authorities that his hearers respect, but he's also pointing out how badly they're missing God. A few months ago, I met uh, with an atheist uh, from, the, from Reddit, uh, as Glenn was talking about. Uh, I'll call him John. And his mother is a Christian, I learned, and his father is a Muslim. John grew up deeply interested in studying the existence of God, and their family was very comfortable sitting at the dinner table arguing about God's existence and talking about different philosophical positions. So debating religion was part of John's entire childhood. Eventually, he would let go of the Muslim faith and the Christian faith, because he didn't think it stood up to inquiry. I asked him several questions about what he now believed about the world and spirituality. First, he told me how he believed morality was socially constructed. Then he said that God didn't exist, but instead a wonder and awe of the cosmos is in all of us. So I brought up Terrence Malick, who's a film director who uh, made the film Tree of Life with Brad Pitt. And Terence Malick's whole thing is bringing out the wonder and awe of the universe in each of his movies. And for John, this was someone who related directly to him to describe what he would understand as kind of the existential, out there being kind of thing. Maybe you have similar beliefs. Maybe you've read different things about how people make sense of this wonder could be that you've seen this wonder and awe in all things, or maybe you've read about the indestructible energy at the core of an atom, or something else. But Paul is making sure that the Athenians leave this conversation knowing that it's the God of the Bible they should be worshiping, not an existential unknown being. So once Paul establishes his bridge to his listeners, He now completes his gospel presentation. Look with me at verses 29 to 30. Paul says God made us, so we can't be like anything man creates. Man is made in the image of God, not the other way around. This time of ignorance, which Paul means to say up until the life of Jesus Christ, God overlooked but now God commands all people everywhere to repent. But now, the words, but now, are so key in verse 30 because as commentator F.F. Bruce puts it, Paul is essentially saying the coming of Christ marks a fresh start in God's dealings with the human race. The full revelation of God is in the revelation of Christ. You have a second chance to believe in God. Now that Christ has arrived, Paul is urging his hearers to repent of their man-made idols, their man-made gods, and embrace the true knowledge of God embodied in the risen Christ. And he goes on to finish. He says the God who created the world is also a judge. He's also the judge of the world. He's appointed a day in the future when the man he's appointed, Jesus, will come to judge every person that's ever lived. To those who repent and believe this day is a day to look forward to with hope. To those who don't repent, it's a day that will only bring us fear. And so you might expect at the end of this speech the Athenians mocked Paul for speaking about a resurrection of all things. But some believed and wanted to hear more, and oftentimes that's the case. When Christ is shared. So Paul's method can be summed up in a few different notes. And Pastor Tim Keller highlights a few of these for us. The first is that he uses vocabulary and themes that are familiar to his listeners. Secondly, he describes God in ways that his listeners could accept. He quotes authorities that his listeners respect. He starts with points of actual agreement between their beliefs. And he affirms their longing for truth. We see through Paul that sharing your faith has as much to do with listening and observing than it does with speaking. Sharing your faith has as much to do with listening and observing as it does with speaking. Paul couldn't speak this way unless he cared for his listeners so much that he knew them down to the poets that they read. He found points of common interest and belief. He didn't act boastful or condemn them with a Bible verse. He knew starting with John 3.16 wouldn't get him anywhere. He doesn't assume they know who Jesus is or what the word sin means, perhaps. He approaches them where they are, not where he wants them to be. Tim Keller calls biblical truth that Christians and non-Christians both agree on A beliefs. A beliefs, not that special. But an A belief might be the agreement over how wrong and evil racism is, perhaps. But then there are B beliefs. These are the points of contradiction. Someone who doesn't believe all mankind has dignity because they're made in God's image, will obviously have other reasons for believing that racism is evil. It's the work of the loving, patient patient Christian to ask questions and to learn about how they've come to their convictions. Once they have time to think and discuss, an opening will inevitably occur for the Christian to build off this A-belief in this case, the condemnation of racism from the Bible. Then they can gently bring to light the vulnerability, the vulnerable foundation of their friend's B-belief. Finally, they show how the Bible actually makes the most sense. So Paul brings the philosopher's foundation into the light. He says, since we're made from God, how can he be created out of gold by us? and worshiped as we want, made out of images we create. Paul shows them that their beliefs fail on the basis of their own premises. He shows them lovingly and graciously how their own beliefs about idolatry are inconsistent with their own beliefs about God. So you might be thinking this all sounds kind of hard or confusing. You might be saying, I can't be expected to have conversations like this. Paul's really smart. He's really knowledgeable at the Bible. He's he's an apostle. You might say, like I did for a long time, that I don't think I'm smart enough to have this kind of conversation with the people that I know or where I work with. But I have good news. You don't have to be smart to have these kinds of conversations. If we listen more than we talk and ask questions as simple as, why do you believe that? We'll be amazed at where God leads the conversation. And I've seen this so many times. Built into Paul's method is that he knows his hearers' beliefs will ultimately end up failing on their own premises. When someone's premise starts to shake, it leads them to questions. It also leads to vulnerability. In my own conversations with different atheists in this town, there always came a point where their explanations would kind of get held up, and they would either say they needed to think more deeply about it, or they'd ask me what I thought. And it's in these moments that we need to know God's truth revealed in his word. These are opportunities for us to share. You don't have to be smart to ask questions, but you do need to be knowledgeable of your faith and the hope that's within you. It's imperative that we read and seek to understand God's word, but we don't need to be experts. So part two, the teacher. Who did Paul learn this model from? Where did Paul learn to love people so much that he dedicated his time to understanding different cultures than his own? Why was he kind and understanding rather than arrogant and prideful? After all, Paul didn't balk at their faith in idols. In love, he acknowledged that, yes, God is to be worshipped, but he's not to be worshipped in idols, and he's not to be worshipped the way you want to worship him. Paul learned his method from the master evangelist himself, Jesus Christ, You see, Paul used to be an elite Jewish political figure of sorts, and he hated hearing about Jesus. He was one of the main persecutors of the early Christian church. But one day, Jesus met him for the first time on the road to Damascus, bringing himself down to Paul's level and communicating with him in a way he would clearly understand. Listen to Paul yourself, and at this point he was referred to as Saul. But in Acts 26, listen to this. This is Paul speaking. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. About noon as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show. What I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." The God of the universe comes to Paul on the road to Damascus and the first thing he does is asks Paul a question. He says, "Why?" why are you persecuting me why are you so angry paul why don't you believe the all-knowing risen jesus gives the world's most notorious persecutor of the church the opportunity to search his own heart for the reasons behind his hatred after maybe a second or a minute maybe an hour we don't know deep down paul knew he hated Jesus. When people ask criminals why they did what they did, they want to know how they got that way. What life events led to them led them to want to do the things that they've done. Paul knew in this moment that unless the grace of God transformed his heart, his sin would condemn him for eternity. He needed the kind of forgiveness that's only possible with Christ. So Paul repented and believed in Christ. And the Bible says Paul went away for a few years after this event. During these years, the grace of God would transform the way Paul would see everything in the world. The forgiveness of sins and transforming love of Christ would become Paul's singular focus for the rest of his life. He would plead with hard-hearted people like you and me, to open the eyes, to open their eyes to the gracious creator of the world. Finally, our third part, the conclusion, the invitation. Some of us here may not believe all of this, all of what Paul is talking about, everything that I've said, but the same Jesus who lovingly asked Paul why is asking you the very same question. Why don't you believe? God sent his son, Jesus, to demonstrate as plainly as he could that he'd go to hell and back to redeem you. He couldn't communicate this any clearer. Tonight's invitation might not be as flashy as Paul's was on the road to Damascus, but it has just as much transforming power for you. Will you acknowledge your hard heart to God? Will you accept Christ's offer of forgiveness? Christian brothers and sisters, we can't share our faith until we remember how much Christ loves us. We can't go a day without sinning against him and we can't forget his grace for us. Jesus came as a servant to patiently bear with our hard hearts and to pour his love out for us. He bore our sins on his body He died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved and removed our guilt. And he wrote this all down in a book to remind us every single day that he is our God and we are his people. This is the God we worship. So let's ask God that he would give us opportunities to tell others about him. Let's ask God to give us the right questions to ask and the ability to listen for days and months and years and use us to bring people into the saving knowledge of his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us the ability to speak about our faith. We ask that you would use our timid hearts in a way that would glorify you and that would bring people to knowledge of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.